Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. This is God's Word, and you may be seated. So this Lenten season, we are looking at this great passage of Scripture from Ephesians 6, and we remind ourselves every week, and hopefully more often than that, that We are engaged in a cosmic conflict with very powerful forces and personalities. However, our fight is a close internal struggle. If you look a little bit earlier in Ephesians Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. The implication is that the devil attacks us in those moments, in those struggles where we are dealing with something internal, like anger, like other things, and he turns that, he uses that opportunity to shift our attention away from Jesus, from trusting, serving, and enjoying Jesus, and this is how he gains victory over us. So last week... We talked about the belt of truth, protecting us from the devil's lies. So one of his schemes, one of the subtle ways that he influences us is he lies to us and he makes us believe things that are not true and act accordingly. This week we're looking at uh, the devil's, a different strategy of the devil, which is accusation. And we're going to consider how the gospel can protect us from the devil's accusations. He's not only a liar in general... He is an accuser in particular. Revelation 12 calls him the accuser of the brethren. He's the accuser of the Christians. And so he wants us to feel condemned and rejected. But we can protect ourselves with the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. Now, breastplate uh, is a metal piece of armor for those of us who... um, are not uh, frequent visitors at Renaissance fairs and don't understand how these things work. A breastplate is a metal piece of armor that covers your chest and your abdomen, and its function is to protect all the vital organs. You may be able to to, uh, survive a wound to your arm or your leg, but if you get 
pierce through the heart, you lose, and so the heart is protected by the breastplate. In fact, some call this breastplate a heart protector. The devil's accusations cut to the deepest parts of who we are, to the very heart of who we are. They often come through other people, their criticism or rejection, but they only work if they connect with a deep insecurity in our own hearts. Now, this morning, we will learn how not to give in to condemnation when the accuser attacks. And the key idea for us to consider is righteousness. We're going to consider righteousness. Now, I was thinking about the outline for the sermon, and I remembered a conversation I had with a Russian Baptist pastor. And he was asked by someone else in that conversation what kind of training he received for preaching. And he said that when his father, who was also a pastor, considered that his son was ready to start preaching, he gave him a list of templates for sermon outlines. Now remember, this is uh, Christians who grew up and were prepared for ministry outside of any sort of structure or official training. There were no seminaries at that time in the former Soviet Union, so it was passed down from one pastor to another. And this pastor gave his son a list of sermon outlines, so templates you could use. You can look at a text and say, I can break it down in this way. And one of those outlines was, this template was a two-point sermon where the first point poses a human problem and the second point suggests a divine solution. Very simple outline for those of you who speak or teach or preach. This is a great outline to use, and so I'm going to use this tried-and-true simple outline this morning. So first, let's look at humanity's greatest struggle, our problem, humanity's greatest struggle with righteousness. And secondly, let's look at God's greatest gift as solution to our problem. All right, I'd like to show you that our greatest struggle, in fact, has to do with righteousness. Now, this sounds, I realize, this sounds like something you can hear only at church. Only at church do we talk about righteousness in any sort of meaningful or, or practical way. In the culture, righteousness has a very negative connotation and is used sort of as an insult most of the time. You're so righteous or you're self-righteous or holier than thou. But in church, we talk about this idea of righteousness that permeates the scriptures. It's part of our conversations. It's in our songs. It's in our prayers. And what I'd like to show this morning is that this is not just a religious problem or a religious conversation that you can only enter when you're at church. I'd like to quote extensively from several secular sources this morning to illustrate that everyone has a problem with righteousness. Not just religious people. Everyone has a problem with righteousness. Okay, so let me define righteousness, and then I'll give you examples, and then we'll work through it and see how Scripture can help us solve that problem. Now, in the Bible, we want to define things biblically. We don't want to just go based on what we think, but how does the Bible define this term, righteousness? This word group, several different words in, in different ways, they're often translated in the Old and the New Testament as righteousness or justice. Justice is another uh, a shade of that. 
And uh, one uh, dictionary says that this word group tends to be relational and concrete. Relational and concrete. One is righteous with respect to another human being or to God in a particular kind of conduct or in a particular contention which has arisen. The Bible presents righteousness as a relational dynamic. I can be righteous before someone because I fulfill their expectations. So if I am righteous, that means I am right with someone. It means I am right before someone in someone's sight. It means being, being accepted, being approved by someone. It means to pass assessment or inspection by someone who is important, who has the right to do that in your life. The standards of righteousness, they don't exist in a vacuum according to Scripture. They're not just sort of abstract standards that are out there. These standards are set in relationship. The Bible often uses the phrase, righteous before God. Righteous before God. Or some of your translations would say, righteous in His sight. Meaning that to be righteous before God... Um, we are to meet God's expectations. When Psalm 145.17 says, the Lord is righteous in all His ways, it means that the Lord has met the expectations of the covenant relationship with His people. So to be righteous is to be in a relationship and to fulfill expectations, to meet expectations of the other person who is important to you. That's, that's how Scripture presents righteousness. And often in Scripture, if you're a careful reader of the Bible, especially of the prophets, you come across these, they seem like courtroom scenes. They seem like these, these conversations. They're almost like arguments, like, like court cases between God's people and God. So for example, and, and if you download these notes later online, you'll see all these references, but Isaiah 45 and Lamentations 1, those are some examples where you see that in Scripture. There's a conversation happening between God and His people where righteousness of God is affirmed and defended and His people are acknowledged to be in guilt and shame. So, for example, in Daniel 9, Daniel says, You are righteous, but to us belongs shame. Now, this happens in the relational dynamic. This is really important to understand that these are not just abstract standards. They've been defined by that relationship. So when God has a quarrel with His people, when God has, there's a contention, right? God can say, I have been righteous because I have fulfilled my obligations. What was expected of me in this relationship, I have done. Have you done what you are expected to do? And so often in Scripture, there is a confession that, that is in the midst of that contention, that conversation, where God's people acknowledge that we have not been faithful. We have not met our ex, our, your expectations. We have not reached the standards that are set out in this covenant. And so God's people repent and confess, and they say, we are not righteous. We are not right with you. We have not acted rightly. Now, this is 
what righteousness means in Scripture. Now, let me give you an everyday example of righteousness, and hopefully that puts it in a, in a very familiar context for us so we can process this word that sometimes seems just very religious and somewhere out there distant from our world. In fact, I think this concept is very present in our lives. Here's an example. When you go to a job interview, you try to dress appropriately. There's a dress code, right? And you kind of know what's expected depending on the job you're trying to get. You try to be on time. You try to be polite and respectful. You try to give the right answers, answers that you think the interviewer is anticipating that would please him or her. Now, now why are you doing that? You want to be righteous before this person interviewing, interviewing you. You're trying to make an impression. You're trying to portray yourself in a certain way so that you would be approved, accepted, affirmed by that person. So you would pass that inspection. You would pass that assessment. This is what happens every time we, we do a job interview. But why try to meet this person's expectations? Well, because they are important. They're important because they have the power to give you a job that you want. Now, this is how righteousness works. Now, when you, you try to kind of get it out of the religious context and try to kind of cut off the implications and the connotations that we often put into that, that word in, in our culture, what it is is a relational acceptance. It's meeting expectations. It's, 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 it's being made approved and acceptable in someone's eyes who is important to you. Now, why am I suggesting this morning that humanity's greatest struggle is, in fact, with righteousness. Because I think we all live to gain someone's approval, to meet someone's expectations, to pass someone's inspection, to be accepted by someone we consider important. I think this reality is inescapable in life. Whether you are religious or not, I grew up in, in an atheistic society, and this is the same reality. You don't have to have the religious terms as part of your worldview to experience this. It's inescapable. We're all living to gain this righteousness with someone. Let me give you some examples from our culture. The comedian John Mulaney, um, some of you know him, uh, he says... I think very insightful. He says, if there's a hell, I think it's an encyclopedia. And you can just look up what everyone in your life thought about you. And if there's a heaven, it's a Wikipedia, and you can just change that. <laughs> now, what is he saying? Funny, right? But what is he really saying? He's saying that the worst-case scenario in his mind is to be exposed to everyone's opinion about him. He says it would be terrible, it would be like hell to know all the negative things that all these different people thought of me and being unable to change it. But a positive scenario, the best scenario, heaven in his mind, is to be able to edit what other people think of you. To be able to change your, the perception of people, especially important people in your life and to make them think and consider you righteous. Now, I'm using my words, biblical words, but that's what he means. 
Elton John is one of the most successful artists of all time, sold millions and millions of records. However, none of what he achieved impressed his father, who never attended any of his concerts or expressed pride in his son's success. Their relationship was strained until his father died in 1991. In his new autobiography, Elton John admits, now this is his words, I'm not reading that into people's lives, okay? I'm quoting people who are processing that themselves. In his new autobiography, Elton John admits that he spent his whole career, quote, trying to show my father what I'm made of. He writes, it's crazy, but I just wanted his approval. I'm still trying to prove to him that what I do is fine, and he's been dead for almost 30 years. Elton John wants to be righteous in his father's eyes. That's what he wants. He wants to be accepted. He wants to be approved. He wants to be validated. He wants to meet the standards of his dad. And many of us in this room are immediately identifying with that dynamic because we have had parents that we, we have disappointed or that are disappointed in us for whatever reason. A bus driver from the Rolling Stones, for the Rolling Stones, uh, the band that is still playing, remarkably still touring, this bus driver, this is probably some years back, uh, reportedly said that Mick Jagger, some would say the coolest person in the world, right, in, in some people's estimation, called his parents almost every night after he was done with his set on an American tour, so it's 3 o'clock in the morning here. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's early morning in England. He's calling his parents every night, and every phone call <coughs> begins with, hello, this is Michael. This is Michael. He's using his family name because he's respectful to his parents, this, this rock star rebel, right, <laughs> that can't walk by a woman without a woman fainting, right? This is the person who calls his parents every night and says, this is Michael. Why? Righteousness. He, he wants righteousness with his parents. My point is very simple. We all live in pursuit of this kind of righteousness. Someone's opinion matters to us, and it matters to us so much that it shapes our careers. It defines our relationships. It is the basis for how we feel about ourselves. Let me give you one more example of the universal pursuit of righteousness from one of my uh, frequently watched TV shows, Frasier. I've quoted Frasier before. In this episode, the Crane brothers, Frasier and Niles, found out quite by accident of the existence of an exclusive club in Seattle that they were not invited to. That uh, upheaves their whole world. You know. How can it be that they are not invited to this exclusive club? So after some creative maneuvering, Frazier and Niles gain access to what turns out to be a luxury spa. Their joy at being part of something so exclusive and so luxurious is quickly spoiled by a realization that there was a gold door in the club to which they had no access. 
turned out there was a gold level of membership within the exclusive club. So there's an even more exclusive group of people. Frazier and Niles eventually figure out a way to get through the gold door and into an even more luxurious area of the club. Now they thought they were in heaven until they noticed there's a platinum door in the corner of that room. At this point, they're very impatient, and they just feel like they're just toying with them, and so they just rush through this door, push it open, only to find that this is, a, uh, this is an emergency exit <laughs> leading to the alley by the garbage containers, and they get locked out wearing nothing but their robes. I think this is a perfect picture of humanity's problem with righteousness. Friends, we work so hard to gain approval, to be deemed worthy, to be accepted by somebody important, to be in that exclusive club where only certain people are there, to be in the inner ring, as C.S. Lewis writes about. We work so hard, and yet at the end of that pursuit, we find ourselves often in the alley, by the garbage, locked out, wearing nothing but our robes. So many people in the church and outside the church identify with this kind of dynamic. And the devil uses that, that kind of struggle. He uses parental disapproval, for example. He uses social rejection and exclusion he uses relational conflict as an opportunity to speak into our deepest insecurities. And so he accuses us. He convinces us that we really are a fraud, as everyone around us has already figured it out. We really are a failure, as our parents predicted we would be. We really are nothing but a huge disappointment to everyone who knows us. And this feeling of condemnation, when it connects, when someone's remarks, when your experience with someone, when a relational conflict, when somebody, something somebody said, when it connects with that, with your, your search for righteousness, when it goes right to your heart, it pierces through your heart, it can utterly destroy a person. Now, where does this cosmic insecurity come from? Why do we all keep searching for this relational righteousness, deeming somebody important and then trying to, to meet their standards? Where does this come from? Here's the world's answer. The issue is internal, the world says. The issue is internal. We simply care too much about what other people think, and we need to break free from the expectations that are put on us by our parents or our culture or our religion. The solution here, the world says, is live by your own standards, meet your own expectations, and follow your own ambitions. You can be righteous, the world says, in your own eyes, and thus you can forget about everyone else. Now, if you're, if you're in this culture, isn't that the message of, of almost every musical 
Every TV show, every celebrity interview, that's the message. Don't worry about what other people think. Just don't worry about it. Reject those external standards. Focus on your own internal standard. Follow your heart and you will be happy because you will meet your own expectations and, I add parenthetically, you will meet your own standard of righteousness. You'll be righteous in your own eyes. That's the advice of the world. Now, forgive me a little bit of cultural commentary here. How is that working out in our culture? There, there are certain scenarios that develop in, in, in my observation. Those who follow the world's advice, many quickly recognize that they cannot meet even their own expectations. The world said, don't worry about anybody else, worry about yourself, just meet your own expectations. And we say, I can't even meet my own expectations. Often you hear people say, I want to be the best version of myself. Have you heard that? I want to be the best version of myself. What does that mean? That means there are different versions of who I am. I'm picking the best one, and I'm working really hard to be that, but I am not that. I am a lesser version of myself currently, but I'm working on a, on a better version. Now, that's a person that doesn't need to have any religious guilt. They don't need to have any bad uh, childhood trauma. This could be a perfectly, quote-unquote, healthy person that realizes that they're not what they want to be themselves. Aside from any external standard, their own internal standard is not being met. I like to listen to comedians. As you know, I quote from comedians often because they are people who are tremendously insecure and they don't mind talking about it. <laughs> it's very helpful because it gives us a window into the heart. Many of us, are, we, we, we don't want to admit things that they admit on stage. And so when they do that, it's helpful for us to see what's really going on in our own hearts. And so comedians often talk about how they could have a great reception from the audience, go back to the dressing room, and think, I missed that one joke I wanted to say, and that would spoil their night. Why? Internal standard, not external. The audience is happy. They didn't know what you were planning to do. They're happy. But the person is not happy because their internal righteousness has not been maintained. Now, there's another group that follows the advice of the world, and they reject all external standards in order to acquire righteousness from within, and so they commit to only do and say what feels right to them in the moment. They don't believe there's a better version of themselves. They just believe there is this one version. This is the authentic version of who they are. And if they simply do what they have to do right now, honestly, before themselves, not pretending, not being a hypocrite, not trying to do anything else anybody else says, but just do what I want to do right now, that's the key to happiness. This is how you get righteousness. Now, these people are typically divorced and unemployed. The reason is because it's utterly unsustainable. You, cannot, you simply cannot live like that. It fractures your life. It fractures your life. If you follow the world's advice and only do what you want to do in the moment, you cannot actually function in the world. Now, the reason, I think, why the world's approach of internalizing righteousness doesn't work is because it takes an essentially relational problem and it turns it inward. It forces it inside, but righteousness is relational. 
We need the approval of someone important. No matter how important you think you are, you need the approval of somebody more important than you. That's how righteousness works. There's no other way to deal with that. So when you take that relational issue and you just stuff it into your heart and you say, I will deal with that on my own, it breaks down and it fractures your soul. It, it, it makes you fall apart. You can't deal with a relational issue internally by yourself. Now, I want to be careful when I say that because I think there are many causes of mental illness. There are many causes of mental illness. But I want to say that I think the increase in mental health or mental health decline in our society today, I wonder how much of that is rooted in this strategy of taking a big problem and stuffing it inside, taking a relational righteousness problem and saying, I'm going to deal with it within myself. I think it fractures our souls. I think it brings sickness into our hearts because we are not made to deal with righteousness on our own. We need someone else from outside to tell us that they approve of us, that we have passed their inspection, that they are pleased with us. This is how God made us, in human relationships and in relationship with God. Now, the Bible, unlike the world, sees this problem with righteousness not as an internal issue to be solved by us, but a theological one. The Bible sees humanity's struggle rooted in a fractured relationship with God. The Bible sees humanity's struggle rooted in our fractured relationship with God. What we really lack is the approval of the most important person. We instinctively know, whether you're religious or not, we instinctively know that we cannot pass God's inspection, that we cannot meet His expectations. The Bible says that our fundamental problem is that we are not righteous in God's sight. That we are not right with Him. And unless our relationship with God is reestablished, unless we somehow become righteous before Him, we have no chance in defending ourselves against the accuser, and we will be condemned forever. This is where the Bible cuts through our cultural views. It exposes how the world deals with these issues in an inadequate way, and it produces a solution. So now let's talk about God's greatest gift to us, His solution to this problem with righteousness. This is His greatest gift to humanity. Remember that all the pieces of the armor in Ephesians 6 are actually God's own armor. So Isaiah 59, verse 17, speaks of God. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. So God takes off his own armor, and he gives it to us to be defended against the accuser. How is it possible? How can we take something that is God's, use it for our benefit, and be able to solve this problem of righteousness? 
Romans 4, verse 25, helps us. It says that Jesus Christ, God and man, fully God, right, with all the attributes of God, there's, there's, there's no inequality in the Godhead. He is fully God, full divinity, and yet becoming fully human. And when Jesus lived his life, and he died his death, and he rose again, this is what happened. Romans 4.25 tells us that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, for our sins, and raised for our justification. Justification is the same word as righteousness. To be justified, to be made just, to be justified means to be made righteous, to be made right with God, to somehow meet His standards, somehow to be approved by Him. And Jesus does something on the cross and in the empty tomb that removes our shame and guilt and gives us a righteousness, His own righteousness, that puts us in a different position before God. Jesus died for our unrighteousness and rose to make us righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, pay attention to these words in Scripture, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God makes Jesus sin, though He knew no sin. He's not sinful, but God makes Him sin so that we become God's righteousness, not our righteousness, but God's righteousness. So something happens on the cross. Something happens in the empty tomb where Jesus takes on our problem and he gives us his solution. He takes our sins. He takes our disappointments. He takes our fears. He takes the deep cosmic insecurity in our heart and then he replaces it with his righteousness, with his standing before God. Jesus was condemned in our place so that we can be justified. He was considered unrighteous, so we would be considered righteous. His righteousness is imputed to us by faith. It's given to us by faith as a gift. Jesus has God's approval. Jesus is fully accepted with the Father. And in His life and resurrection, He gives us that righteousness He gives us God's approval. He gives us God's acceptance. He gives us God's perfection to us. This is God's greatest gift to humanity, and it's a a marvelous, magnificent solution to our greatest struggle. So if you are a Christian this morning, if you are in Christ by faith, if you've accepted this gift of righteousness, then you are not condemned. You are not rejected. God has justified you based on what Jesus has done in your place. That means that as far as God is concerned, as far as the most important person in existence is concerned, you have passed his inspection. You have met his standards. You are, in fact, according to God, righteous in his sight. All of that because of what Jesus did in your place, instead of you, on your behalf, so you could have this righteousness as a gift. So whatever the accuser throws at you today, 
God has already cleared you of those charges. Whatever sins the accuser reminds you of today, God has already forgotten them. Whatever failures the accuser brings up into your mind today as you leave church or right now, God has already forgiven you. What though the accuser roar of ills that I have done, I know them well, and thousands more, Jehovah findeth none. What does that mean? It means that Satan can bring up lots of things that are true about us. He can point to lots of examples in our lives where we have failed God's standards. Where based on those experiences, we should be excluded from God's family. We should be rejected by God. We would never pass His inspection based on our righteousness. But what is also true is that God gave us another righteousness. He gave us something else, someone else's record, someone else's character, someone else's standard, someone else's standing before God. And by embracing that by faith, we trust that Jehovah, our God, findeth no ills with us. He can't find anything blameworthy about us because He looks at us through His Son, Jesus. When Jesus died, He took all of our ills and He left them in that grave. When Jesus rose from the grave, His righteousness became ours. So when the devil comes and reaches deep into your heart and he touches that, that part of your heart that has been insecure all your life and he brings to mind that one word somebody said, maybe your parents, maybe your spouse, maybe your friend, maybe your boss, maybe your teacher, somebody someone said and you knew that they know who you are and that you would never pass their inspection, you would never please them, you would never, they would never approve of you. And when the devil reaches deep into your heart and points to that, what do we do? We put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. That is what you do when the accuser comes and roars and accuses you. This is how you defend yourself. You put on Christ's own righteousness as a breastplate to protect your heart from condemnation, to protect your heart from rejection. When the devil says, You can't go to God. How how can you even pray to Him? He will never forgive you. Look at what you've done. We say with the breastplate of righteousness securely fastened over our vital organs, we say, I can go to God. He will certainly forgive me. Look at what my Savior has done. I'm wearing His righteousness as a breastplate. When the devil comes and says, God can't love you, look at yourself, what a pathetic sinner you are, what a pathetic loser you are. Why would God love you? You say, God certainly loves me. Look at Jesus, what a gracious Savior he is. And I'm wearing his righteousness as a breastplate. Romans 8 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. 
And the Puritan Thomas Brooks comments, the law cannot condemn a believer, for Christ has fulfilled it for him. Divine justice cannot condemn him, for that Christ has satisfied. His sins cannot condemn him, for they in the blood of Christ are pardoned. And his own conscience upon righteous grounds cannot condemn him, because Christ, that is greater than his conscience, has acquitted him. So when the accuser roars, you remind him and you remind yourself who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When the devil points out your flaws and your failures and calls you unlovable, worthless and pathetic, you say, yes, yes, but I am perfect in Christ. I will boast of the Lord. I will boast in the Lord, for Christ is my wisdom, my righteousness, my sanctification, and my redemption. So I put on his righteousness as a breastplate so I can withstand the devil's accusations. Martin Luther was very sensitive to these kinds of things that happened in his heart. He was very sensitive to the devil coming and accusing him. He describes one of his conversations with the devil this way. When the devil throws our sins up to us, and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, where he is, there shall I be also. The only way to achieve righteousness is through Christ. The only way to heal this cosmic insecurity in our hearts is by faith in Christ's gift of righteousness. The only way to defend ourselves from the accusations of the enemy is by putting on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. When the devil comes, when somebody makes a critical remark and, and, and the devil just twists it deep into your heart, when you're dealing with that, please, don't bring your own righteousness. Don't try to defend yourself based on your own merits. You bring in a knife to a gunfight. You're always going to lose. You're always going to lose with the devil because he knows how sinful you are. He knows things that we dare not express. But when you come with Christ's righteousness and you put on that breastplate, he can't do anything against you. I'll finish with this illustration. And, and as a remark, I hope my family is not listening to my sermons, and I hope the language barrier is enough to, for them not to know I'm sharing some of these stories with you. But you, you look like a trustworthy bunch, so if... <laughs> If my dad, my dad or my brother ever ask you about this, 
just deny that. <laughs> my brother, when he was growing up, um, it, we, we grew up in this big neighborhood in the city, and, and, and there were lots of you know, other kids that were not as nice as my brother and I, and so there was some bullying happening there, and, and so my brother got into, a, um, got into trouble with some, some of the local hoodlums, uh, and I, I revert to the 1930s language for some reason when I talk about these stories, but <laughs> it hasn't been that long. But my brother got in trouble with these, these local, um, local kids, and so finally he's had enough of that. He talked to my uncle. My uncle uh, is someone, shall we say, connected. You know, he's, he's got relationships with people in the business world that sometimes are very useful to him in, in times of trouble. And so my uncle was just all too happy to help uh, my brother. And so these kids from the neighborhood came to finally, you know, enforce their will upon my brother. What they didn't expect is a black SUV with tinted windows <laughs> pulling in and a couple of boys getting out that you don't know whether their background was military, if it was athletic, or if it was prison. It was <laughs> unclear. And they got out, and that was the last time that these kids messed with my brother because they realized there was something much bigger at play here. And they didn't want to risk. And so when we go, when the devil comes to us and we respond to him, we don't bring our own righteousness. You don't, you know, start throwing punches. You bring in Jesus. And you say, his righteousness will hold. His righteousness justifies me before God and certainly before the devil. And so I put on his breastplate. I put on his righteousness and the devil cannot penetrate that. His, his greatest, deepest, most insightful accusations cannot penetrate that armor. I finish with this. Friends, what a message the gospel is to many in our world who live under condemnation, who live thirsting for righteousness, who live longing for acceptance. Maybe it is you this morning. Maybe you realize that the approval you've been seeking, the inspection you've been trying to pass, that important person in your life is never really going to accept you for who you are. Maybe this is time to go to the most important person. Maybe this is the time to go to the one who has promised to love you who has justified you in Christ. And by faith, you grab hold of that gift. And you say, it's not my righteousness. That's not going to work. But Christ's perfect righteousness is given to me. I can put it on today by faith. And I can be protected for all accusations.